In the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 12, verse 28, we read, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And, that's emphasis from me, and you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and all your strength. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the power of your gospel, the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us this day and our time together not only to come to understand your word and to understand you and the theology of your word, but Lord, help us to come and love you more. Help us to come to love our neighbors as ourselves. Help us, O oh Lord, even now, to rest upon your spirit, to illumine your word, and we rest in our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but I have really enjoyed Pastor Jeff's exploration of the Old Testament. When I teach the Old Testament, it's important, and I stress this constantly, to ask the question, what does this passage tell you about the person, nature, and work of God? Many of you have learned the stories, particularly in Genesis, but can you put them together for a theology of God? And that's the question. Now what I'd like to do is just briefly look at the, the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, and give you an idea of what I mean. When you read Genesis, chapters 1 through 11, you can only come away with one thought. God is creator, much like we read in the Psalms this morning. But in Genesis chapter 12 and the end, we find that this creator, the heaven, creator of the heavens and the earth, for some reason wants to have a covenant with Avram. And he wants to bless all the nations. And we get to Exodus, we can only determine that God is a God who is a redeemer. When we read Leviticus and we struggle through the text, what do we understand? This God who's a redeemer is holy, and he expects to be worshipped in an appropriate manner. We get to Numbers, if you get that far, 
And we find we don't like to hear this, but this God can be a God of wrath. Read numbers in that light. For those who are disobedient to him. And finally, when we get to Deuteronomy, we find that God is a God of love. Every bit as much as in the Apostle John. So with this as the framework, I want to take a deep dive, not a broad exit. We're going to look at one verse. I was challenged once that I couldn't go 40 minutes on one verse. Believe me, I can go two or three hours on this verse. Now this morning, we want to work our way through this text. It's going to be an unusual sermon, more of a teaching thing than an exhorting thing, because I want, to walk, I want you to walk away from here knowing more about God than when you came in or you started viewing this on YouTube. Now, I'm going to read the text to try to get over certain translational issues which will come, become glaringly obvious. So I'm going to read from the 14th century Masoretic text. It is the text in which all of your English versions are derived. And if you're really into it and you're really concerned about your Bible being accurate, it is also the text from the Deuteronomy scrolls in Qumran from 300 BC. So for at least 1,700 years, the text hasn't changed. Takes a little while going right from left. The text is this. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohinu, Adonai Echad. Six Hebrew words, starting with the word Shema. It happens to be the foundational affirmation of faith of devout Jews and is even quoted twice a day to current times. It is often the first verse that a Jewish child learns to memorize. In case you may hear, it is the last words that a Jew who is dying will say. In my own personal life, my maternal grandmother would quote this verse. It's the only verse of scripture that she knew. I thought she was saying it in German because she went to a Lutheran church where she came to know Christ. But she had to hide her Jewish ethnicity back in the 1930s. It is also sacred to Christians. The book of Deuteronomy is the book most often quoted by Jesus. And this verse is the center of the book of Deuteronomy. So much so that when Jesus is asked, what is the most important commandment? He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. 
And then he includes, you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. So this first word, Shema, quoted here, what does it really mean to hear? Well, when you jump in the text, you run into the first translation issue. The word Shema can be used about four different things, and I'll show you how it's used. Most translations, if you're looking at your Bible right now, say hear. Well, what does it mean to hear? Well, this is the way Genesis 3.10 describes it. He, Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I heard, Shema. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. With hearing, there is no intentionality. You can hear something accidentally. But the word Shema can also be used to describe the word listen. Now, listen is different than hearing. And in Genesis 27, 5, this is how it's used. Rebecca was Shema, listening, while Isaac spoke to his son Esau. And then it goes on to describe the events there. Rebecca didn't hear, she was intentionally listening what had to be said. So while Shema can mean hear, and we get this interpretation from our English Bible, it can also mean listen. Thirdly, it can mean to obey. And we have this in our English language, and I know Gabriel's here, so I'm not going to pick him out here, but a mother might say to her son, you didn't listen to me. I told you to clean up your room. And she might get a little mad if you said, yes, I heard everything you said. What she really means is that you disobeyed me. You didn't listen to what I had to say. It's used in this way, Genesis 22:18. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have Shema obeyed my voice. Fourthly, it could mean understand. This is the way it's used in Genesis 11, verse 7. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not, shma, understand one another's speech. So in terms of possibilities, the Hebrew word shma, which starts this verse, could mean obey, hear, listen, or understand. So we need to look at it within the context of the verse to come up with what it says. In the verse, it can't possibly mean hear, even though that's what it says in the English, because what? God is saying it. It's not that he just wants you to just arbitrarily hear it. 
right? Accidentally. It can't mean obey because when it uses obey, there are usually stipulations and decrees and all this stuff behind it. I would argue that it means both listen and understand. I think it means listen with understanding. But understand because you've listened carefully. This is the combined sense of how it's used, the word Shema is used in Proverbs 4.1, which is the closest I'm going to get to a Father's Day message. Proverbs 4.1, we read, Shema, listen, my sons, why to pay attention to your father's instruction. And I think that's the way it's used in this verse. So the Shema begins, Hear, O Israel. And we could translate that, Listen, Israel, so that you can understand what I have to say. After God says, Listen, what does he say next? Listen, Israel. And I'm going to say that he says your name. Let me unpack that a little bit. To understand that it might be your name, we need to realize that it wasn't your name in the beginning. You will remember that there's a fellow in the patriarchal period named Jacob. You've heard the stories. Many of you learned them in Sunday school. What does Jacob mean? Jacob means cheater. How do we know that? Well, the Bible tells us that explicitly in Genesis 27, verse 36. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me two times. Esau understood that there was something in the character of Jacob that his name reflected. He was a cheater. But remember the story. His name changed. When did it change? What does Israel mean? Israel means overcomer. Israel means prevailer. We see that in Genesis 32, 28. This is the context of Jacob wrestling with a man, angel, God. I don't know. The text is ambiguous. But at the end, the man said, and that's what it says in the text, the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have, and here's our key word, overcome. 
You have struggled with God and overcome. Well, when I was growing up in church, and I would attend Sunday school at this faithful Presbyterian church until I was age 12, I was always told that this means that that rascal Jacob finally got his act together. He finally submitted to God. He finally cried uncle. In a normal wrestling match of today, he tapped out. I would suggest to you that you be very careful what you learned in Sunday school. Because sometimes it's carried to your theology, and it may be correct, but not theologically stimulating. That's not what the text says at all. The text says that Jacob was wrestling match with God, and he didn't tap out. He didn't cry uncle. He's the one who overcame in the struggle. Israel, Yisra, struggle with, El, God. The one who struggled with God, but what? Overcame. He's an overcomer. And I'm going to suggest to you this morning that if you're in Christ, you too are an overcomer. Once God has got your attention, once he said to you, listen and pay attention because what I'm going to tell you is very important, he reveals your name. Your name is a reflection of your character in Hebrew theology. How do you view yourself? God wants you to view yourself as an overcomer, as a prevailer. And this is just not from the Old Testament perspective. It's from the New Testament as well. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.37, all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all things, we are more than conquerors. How do you fundamentally see yourself when you look in the mirror? What do you see? Do you see someone who is a victim that's common in our culture today? Or do you see an overcomer? In the Shema, God reveals to you, you are in essence, as a believer in Christ, you are an overcomer. You are a prevailer. Well, we've seen that your name could be Israel, and please don't get me wrong, I'm not talking in terms of eschatology about the church versus, the, versus Israel in the end times. Please, I'm not going there. But I'd like to twist it a little bit by reversing the order. Israel is your name. Now, I've presumed that, but let me demonstrate it to this point. Let me ask you a question. What comes to mind when you hear the word Israel? Is it the people in Old Testament times? Is it the modern-day people of Israel? What? 
what should come to mind theologically when you hear the word Israel is, that's my name. I am Israel. Not only does it refer to those folks back there in the Old Testament times, it doesn't necessarily refer to the secular nation of Israel. It refers to me. I think this is what the Apostle Paul teaches. In Galatians 3.29, Paul says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Jacob, Israel, is one of Abraham's offspring. In a sense, you are Israel. But he makes it even more clear in Galatians 6.16. He says, Peace and mercy to all that follow. To the God, or to the Israel of God, excuse me, to the Israel of God. He's talking about you in the New Testament. Paul refers to the church as the Israel of God. So when the text says, Hero Israel, God is addressing you particularly, He's addressing you personally. But what does that mean? What does it mean that Israel is my name? Well, in the, in the Hebrew text, the command is a singular command. It is here, Shema, singular. But it's to a group of people. Which is why the text will say, Hero Israel the Lord, our God. As we make this pilgrimage through life, we don't do that only as individuals. We do that as the people of God. That's us. And the name Israel reminds you both of who you are individually, but also as a collective group of people. But then there's a curious thing about this text. When God says, hear, O Israel, in that word Israel, he not only reveals your name, he's revealing your place. After the verb, Listen, Shema, he mentions your name, not his. After he says, listen very carefully so that you will learn some very important things from me, he does not refer to himself first. The first thing he says when he has your attention is your name. This text is about you. He's telling your place because he puts you right after the verb. You see, not only are you the named Israel, not only are you an overcomer, 
But each one of you is part of God's redemptive plan. Each one of you is part of the creative plan. Now, I know this sounds a little strange to you because we've been told, well, it's not about us, it's about God, right? But isn't God a covenantal God? Have you ever thought about having a covenant with one person? It doesn't work. The covenant is what? I will be your God and you will be my people. Hero Israel reveals your name. Israel reveals your place. It is about you, but it's not only about you. And that gets us to the next part of the verse. Adonai Elohinu, Adonai Akkad. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. If you have a Bible in front of you, and it's a good one, I have to make that preface, my guess is that if you were to look at Deuteronomy 6.4, there's a footnote. And that footnote says that it could be translated some other way. Now, don't keep looking. I'll give you the possible ways that it can be translated. All are grammatically correct. The first way, the Lord our God is one Lord. I know of no translation that translates it that way. Second possibility is the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. That's the way the New American Standard translates it. A third way is that the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. That's the way the New Living Translation translates it. It's also the way Tanakh, the English version of the Hebrew Scriptures, translates it. And finally, it can translate it, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The ESV and the NIV both translate it this way. And I think this is in harmony with the natural way the text could be. Now, many of you I've taught in class, you know that I'm the biggest advocate for the New American Standard there is. I think it fails in the translation to get the essence of the Hebrew text. And I think the NIV and the ESV are right on. Why do I think that? Well, there's the Latin version of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Vulgate by Jerome. It's the basis for the Catholic Bible. Uh, that's the way Jerome translated it. We find that in the New Testament text and in the Greek, that's the way they tested it. We find in the Septuagint, 
200 years before Christ. That's the way they translated it. Why there's a difference, I don't know. It's an important difference. So I believe that it says the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Well, first it says Adonai. It says the Lord, all capitals, the tetragrammaton. It's speaking of the Lord, the divine name, the one we're not supposed to pronounce because it violates the commandment, right? If you were a Jew, you would never, ever say Yahweh. You would say Adonai because if you said Yahweh, what? You would violate the commandment. So what does the divine name mean? Well, there's a lot of things we could say about it. The divine name is ineffable. It's a word you probably haven't heard in Walmart. Ineffable. It means incapable of being expressed in words. I think God purposely put his name. Now, I've been in my class, I've taught people how the Tetragrammaton came to be, and I'm not going to go down that road today. But you need to understand, anytime you see the Lord, all capital, all letters, it's the divine name. And the most important thing about the divine name is that it means that God is imminent. That is truth. It, you look at it, that God is always close to his people when the name Adonai or Yahweh or however it's really pronounced because we're not 100% sure is used. It always, always means that the God is imminent. Whether you say Adonai, Yahweh, Jesus, Emmanuel, it all means the same. It refers to God's imminence. We use the word imminent mostly in terms of time, but in theology it means imminent in times of space and time. God is imminent. He's near to us. So while we can't say anything exhaustively about his name, the divine name, it communicates that God is close to his people. But then it says, our God, Elanehu. When we look at the other part, our God, the God element refers to God's transcendence. Another big word. I went to seminary. They paid me to you know, learn that. I don't know. To ascend means what? To go up. To descend means to go down. To transcend means to go beyond anything that there can possibly be. When we refer to God as our God, we're talking about his transcendence beyond anything he could. So it's not an error or a mistake that in Genesis chapter 1 it says, in the beginning, Elohim, 
It's not a mistake. In the phrase, the Lord our God, the Lord refers to his eminence, his being close to us. Our God refers to his transcendence, deity being far above us. It's a compound name, rarely used in scripture. And when it is, pay attention to the verse. So in the God of Israel, we don't have to make a choice. We don't have to worry, is it the God who's above us? Is it the God who's close to us? We don't have to make a choice. It's the Lord, our God. He's close, yet far above us. So when God says, listen, very carefully, there's something that I want you to understand. The first thing he says is your name, Israel. And he goes on to reveal his name, the Lord our God, the one who is transcendent but imminent. The transcendent one who wanted to be so imminent that he took on human flesh. So imminent that he took on human flesh in the name of Jesus to provide perfect righteousness in your case so that you could have a right relationship with God to rise from the dead to intercede for you at the right hand to come ultimately and take you home however that's going to be, rapture or not. The transcendent one, our God, is the imminent one, the Lord, ultimately revealing himself in the person and nature of work of Jesus Christ. We haven't finished yet. We have one more phrase. Adonai Echad. The Lord alone. The Lord is one, however you want to translate it. Let me make an introductory comment. This word, this phrase, is ambiguous. We deal with ambig ambiguity all the time. Let me give you an example. Here's a sentence for you. The lifeguard saw the boy with binoculars. That's pretty ambiguous, right? You don't know whether those words are about the boy who has the binoculars around his neck or the lifeguard who is looking through binoculars at the boy at some distance. You can't tell the difference. Well, the same is true about this phrase, Adonai Echad, the Lord is one. It can refer to one of two things exclusivity of relationship. And if it's so, it would be translated the Lord alone. It can also mean integrity of character. 
and in that way we would translate it one. I'm going to assume that this is a pregnant verse and that it means both. Now I'll try to communicate that to you. This exclusivity of relationship is most prevalent when it's talking about male and female, husband and wife. Now I'm going offline now. In Genesis chapter 3, it says that the male and female became one. It caught. The relationship between husband and wife must be exclusivity of relationship and integrity of character. And that's how the Hebrew text translates it. And when Paul says, be very weary of the adulteress, because you can become one with that person, that's a very dangerous position to be. Husband and wife, when they come together, become ikad, one, just like the Trinity, just like God, one person, or one essence, and that's how you're to be. In that case, two people, two persons, but one essence. That's how husband and wife are to be. Little side note from the text. So it means exclusivity of relationship. Well, if we go back to Mark, the verse that I read when I first started, that's how Jesus interpreted it. Exclusivity. He's saying that God is one. Well, what does that mean? There is no other one but him. And we can only love him with all our heart and all our mind and our soul. Jesus puts the stamp of approval on this interpretation. So it must be true. Exclusivity of relationship. Hence the translation, the Lord alone, seems perfectly fine in the New Living Translation and Tanakh. Well, it's easy to demonstrate as I've already done, that it refers to exclusivity of relationship. The Lord our God, the Lord alone, you'll have no other gods before me. But this phrase can also, the Lord is one, refer to integrity of character. Now I'm going to read from Dr. Walkie, who is the mentor of my mentor at Dallas. In his Old Testament theology, he says, the confession, he's talking about Shema, aims to refute the notion that the tribes, that is, the tribes of Israel, worship different manifestations of Yahweh. There is not a Yahweh represented at Jeroboam's 
little thing in Dan, right? His little northern sanctuary, if you will. And there's not another Yahweh over here in the temple at Jerusalem. Yahweh, the sense is underscored by the word our again. Words are critical. Israel is one people. Israel has one God. And it had tutelage under one Torah. Adonai Echad refers to unity. The unity of character in God of Israel. He is one. He has one divine purpose. No matter where you encounter God, the God of Israel, He is the same. He does not change. This verse does not mean that we who recognize the Trinity in the Godhead violate this verse. This verse has nothing to do with monotheism versus polytheism. Do not let the cults, the Jews, the Muslims try to convince you otherwise. But how does the New Testament understand this? Because my view of Scripture is that it's threaded with salvation history, goes forward and backwards and comes, and it's written by one person. Well, the New Testament, in Hebrew 13.8, we read this about Jesus. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Not changing in character, not changing in purpose, but one. The Old Testament says the God of Israel. The New Testament says Jesus Christ, the God of Israel, Adonai Echad, unity of character, exclusivity of relationship. To confess, therefore, that the Lord is one is to claim that the one who receives ultimate allegiance, that is, exclusivity of relationship, is faithful. He's consistent, not divided within mind, heart, or self in any way. Because the Lord is one, you can trust him. Because the Lord is one, he is faithful. Because the Lord is one, you can rely on him. Except in this economy, I could say you could take it to the bank, but I won't even do that anymore. You can be sure that wherever you encounter the God of Israel, 
the Lord our God, you will encounter one that is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. The bottom line is, because he is one, we must be one. Because that is what is revealed in verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. A topic for a different sermon at a different time. Let me summarize where we've been. Verse 4 is what we call the command before the command. Because God says, before he says, love me with all your heart, soul, and strength, he says, hear. He means, listen with understanding because what I'm about to say is very important. Then once he establishes that, once he's got your attention, he mentions your name, Israel. Once we were Jacob, cheaters, but now we are conquerors in Christ. And this is our name. It's not just the name of the people who lived in the Old Testament times or the people who live in the nation of Israel today. It is the name of all who are united in Christ by grace through faith. It's our name. It reveals our place. Before God reveals anything about himself, he begins by revealing things about us. He shows us that the story is very much about us. He demonstrates it by telling us our place. We're central to the redemptive plan. We're central to the creative plan. As, your story, as you read this story, as you read the text, it's not only the revelation of God, but it is about you. And that's the one thing that I came about in studying this verse. When Pastor Jeff asked me to preach, I told him I struggled with this verse, so he said, preach it, and that's what I did. I didn't realize until just going through that verse that, yes, it's the revelation of God, but it is about us. And we need to know that we are prevailers. We are overcomers. And we can only do that through the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit in Christ. This Lord, the one who is close to us, this God, the one who transcends far beyond anything that we can do, the fact that the Lord our God is one, 
has exclusivity of relationship. We must not have any other gods before him. Yet he has unity of character. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Only when you fully understand this verse can you begin to fulfill the command to love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your strength. In the beginning, I read from Mark. I did not read all of the verse. And I did that for effect. The verse goes on to say, that the scribe understood that, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that we should love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. It says that the scribe finally recognized that it's more important than burnt offerings and sacrifice. And that's how we should look at this text when we read it. Because look at Jesus' response. Jesus saw that he answered intelligently. He expects us to answer intelligently. The people on the outside of this building the people that we have to deal with who are not believers in Christ think we are stupid. But Jesus, because we understand his word, says one thing. You understood it intelligently. And here's the kicker. This is where he ends. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, how can there be in one verse that you think so much about us that we are central to your program, yet We can't even comprehend. You're an infinite God. Lord, I don't know. I can't speak for this congregation, but I can speak to, for myself. I find it difficult to love you with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength. Because I'm just a finite person. But I'm encouraged. I will continue to strive for that. Why? Because you are the Lord our God. And you are one. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.